Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word, and it says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you have searched me, and look to the person next to you and say, God knows you. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with some of my ways. With some of my ways. You're acquainted with all of my ways. For there's not a word of my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we surrender this morning to you. It's yours, Lord. That's why we're here. We're here to gather together and to meet with you and to sing praises to you and to glorify your name. And so, God, would you be honored, Lord? We give you our attention. We give you our time. And we do ask, Lord, that you would speak to us by your word. We want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. We want to know you, Lord. And so, God, would you peel back the areas of our hearts and would your word speak directly to us this morning? I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room that simply knows about you and they don't know you personally. I pray that they would so experience your love this morning that it would totally and radically change them. And, Father, for those that do know your love, uh, but maybe have gotten a little bit dry, maybe they've been doubting your love, maybe they just feel distant, distant from you. God, I pray that they would... Just marvel at the depths of your beauty, your goodness, your love this morning. We give you this time. And in Jesus' name also, Lord, we pray for Pastor Rob and Denise and pray healing over their bodies. Would you restore their health? And in Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to talk about relationships. Relationships. How many of you figured out relationships aren't easy? Okay, they're not too easy, right? They're, they're kind of difficult. There's a mixture of things that go on. There's love, there's trust, there's conflict, there's anger, there's frustration, there's issues. There's a lot of different things that go on with relationships. Well, this morning we're going to talk about relationships. And one of the things I've kind of been considering is that when it comes to relationships, I need to think about the way I think about that person in our relationship. Let me give you an example. My daughter, one of the most important relationships in my life. She's just over five years old, and I'm realizing she's not a toddler anymore. She's not like just kind of like there, just kind of playing and being cute. No, she is a little girl, and she's brilliant. Like she, we started homeschooling with her, and she's just a sponge and soaking everything in. And she's not some unintelligent little baby anymore. She is this big girl in the making, but she's still little. She's my little girl. But she's not a toddler anymore. So I realized that the way I think about her and the way I talk to her, I need to look at her not as a toddler, not as a three-year-old, but as a five-year-old that she is. That she has, she's incredibly smart. And I need to think about her that way. Or maybe a different example. Maybe you are, go, you start a new job and you had a friend in that workplace. And so you've got a friend or a boss. You're realizing now in that relationship, you can't just think of them as a friend anymore. You have to think of them as a fellow employee or as a boss. Because if you keep treating your boss like a friend, then things get a little bit weird, Right? So we got to think about our relationships because how we think about our relationships determine how we act and behave in the relationship. 
Well, this morning I want to persuade you or I want you to consider that the most important relationship in your life is your relationship with God. And that you need to think about your relationship with God. And my question is, how do you think about God? It was A.W. Tozer, pastor, author, who said, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So how do you think about God? How do you think about the most important person that you are in relationship with? The title of our message this morning is, When You Think About God. And we're going to see a couple things this morning. We're going to see how God thinks about us, how we then think about God, and what this means. And that order is important. Because in this relationship, which we call relationship, right? If you've gone to church, an evangelical church for a while, you've probably heard the phrase, this isn't a religion, it's a relationship. But what in the world does that mean? It's like a cute saying, but what does it mean? Well, it means that God is a person that you get to know. But just like in any relationship, there's always an initiator and a responder. How many of you are married or dating? You know what I'm talking about, right? There's always the person who initiated the relationship, and there's the person who responds in the relationship. Well, in our relationship with God, where we know God in our being known by God, he's always the initiator. He's the one who's been initiating and pursuing and searching after us the whole time. We, we're just responding to him. So how we think about God and when we think about God needs to be informed by how he thinks about us. Does that make sense? Okay, number one, how God thinks about you. Now, even before we get into it, that's kind of an interesting idea. How God thinks about you. How many of you like struggle with that, like just honestly, you don't need to raise your hand, but when you go into a new group of people, or you're starting a new relationship, it can be a little bit anxious, or the thoughts come up of, what do they really think about me, right? It's like your first day on the job, your first interview, or you're introduced to a new friend, or you're going on a date for the first time, or even if you've been married for 10 years, you're like, what do they really think about me? We think about that all the time. We're, we're, we're a little bit self-consumed with the way other people think about us. Well, how then does God think about us? Well, the scriptures tell us. Psalm 139, verse 1. Let's read again. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and... So he's pursuing. He's the initiator. You've searched me and you've known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word of my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The first thing I want you to consider this morning and how God thinks about you is this. That God thinks about you. God thinks about you. Don't let that simple yet profound little sentence bypass you. God thinks about you. Not us corporately and in a community, but you personally. God thinks about you. That's incredible. The God who created the heavens and the earth and sustains it all together by the word of his mouth. He thinks about you. I mean, just imagine for a moment your favorite like superstar, your favorite athlete, your favorite celebrity, your favorite politician. What if you were the object of their thoughts? Would that be incredible? Would be that, that be wild? Now multiply that by infinity. The scriptures say that you are the object of Yahweh's, of God's thoughts. 
He knows you and he's thinking about you. How does he think about you? It's remarkable. He's thinking about you. You are on his mind. Now, it gets a little bit wild though. As we begin to unpack that, we learn a bit more. Not only is he thinking about us, but he knows us deeply and he knows us personally. Notice the first thing he says that you know my sitting down and my rising up. In other words, God knows what you do. Let that sink in. God knows what you do. He knows where you go. He knows what you do with your hands. He knows what you do with your feet. He knows what you do, where you go, what you do, everything. He knows what you do. He knows every single action. Good action, bad action, neutral action, everything in between. He knows what you do. That's the first thing. He knows what you do. What's the second thing? The second thing we see is that he knows what we say. The scripture says, there's not a word on my tongue that he does not know it altogether. Let that sink in. He knows what you say when you stub your toe. He knows every curse word that comes out of your mouth, every blessing and praise that comes out of your mouth, every encouragement that comes out of your mouth, and every gossiping word that comes out of your mouth. He knows what you say. He knows the sternness. He knows the attitude. He knows every single thing that you say. That's remarkable. He knows everything we do. He knows everything that we say. Are you uncomfortable yet? (laughs) On top of that, he knows what we think. Notice there in verse 1 or 2, he says, verse 3, you comprehend my path. Or where is it? Verse 2, you understand my thought afar off. Not only, you're like, oh, you know, he knows what I say. I don't cast Tyler. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows every single thing that you think. Every good thought, every bad thought, every ugly thought, every disgusting thought. He knows every single thing that you think. Now imagine just for a moment if your spouse or your best friend had that kind of access to you. If they knew everything that you did, everything that you said, and everything that you think. God knows it all. Not only that, but he knows what we need. Notice there the psalm says that you've hedged me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. The psalmist knew he needed some protection. The Lord protected him. He's hedging him in from behind and before. God knows what you need. God knows every big need from health to finances to relationships and every small need, the little encouragement that you need, little whisper of comfort that you need. God knows everything that you need. So God knows everything you do. God knows everything you say. God knows everything you think. God knows everything that you need. He knows you personally. Are you scared yet? Slightly uncomfortable? God knows you. For some, this is scary. It is uncomfortable. Maybe for good reasons. A fear begins to develop. To the, to the modern reader and the modern hearer, honestly, when I read these verses, I kind of think of like our phones. Like how they hear everything we say. And it's almost as if they can think about what I'm going to purchase next because the ads start popping up. It's a little bit freaky, right? And so when we hear this, they're like, this is kind of weird. Is God going to like misuse and like, I don't know, betray me just like the, the ads on my phone are going to do? Like manipulate me? Is that what's going to happen? This fear can begin to pop up. If God knows everything that I say, do, think, and need, is he really like going to love me? What does this mean for us? 
It can be a little bit scary to be fully and completely known. But you know the only thing that's a little bit scarier than being totally and completely known? It's being totally and completely forgotten. It's one thing to be totally and completely known, to be totally exposed. Like that is a little bit freaky. But to be totally and completely forgotten, that's dreadful. To come into this room week after week for decades and nobody knows your name, that's terrible. To be in an environment totally foreign. Have you ever been there? you ever been in a foreign country where no one speaks your language? No one has anything in common with you? No one knows your name? You're a complete foreigner? That's a little bit of an odd experience. It's like a kid. Like, think about that. Nothing scarier than a kid than going into a, a big group of people and being totally lost because nobody knows them. It's all, the only thing scarier than being totally, completely known is being totally and completely forgotten. Yet we live in a culture that kind of like, I don't know, heightens and intensifies that. Because we're more connected than we've ever been, but we're more lonely than we've ever been. And so we're always putting things out in the world like, know me, know me, know me. This is what I look like. This is what I eat. This is what I'm doing with my life. You post it all over the place. You're telling people, but no one actually knows you personally. And there's this big fear, underlying fear in so many hearts does anyone care? Does anyone know me? Am I totally forgotten? Am I irrelevant as a person? The only thing scarier than being totally and completely known is being totally and completely forgotten. But for the child of God, for the follower of Jesus, that is a fear that we don't need to carry. His perfect love casts all fear. He knows us. He knows what we say. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows what we need. You are not forgotten by God. He knows you. He's searching you out personally, not just corporately as Calvary Vista, but personally, you. As a person, he knows your name. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. It's a little bit freaky at the same time, because if if, if someone really knows all that about me, what is someone's tendency when they find out more about me? Is it to get a little bit closer or a little bit further? Generally, maybe it's just my experience, the more you get to know people, the harder it is to love them. So when we're talking about relationships, most of the relational eruptions in life are in marriages or in family or with best friends. Not with the random person. Why? Because the more you know someone, the more difficult it begins to love, the more complex things can become. So if God knows everything I say, think, do, and need, what does that mean? Well, the scriptures give us clarity. We don't have to wonder. Psalm 139, skip down to verse 17. The second thing I want you to see, the first being that God thinks about you. That's incredible. But what's even more remarkable and almost miraculous is that God's thoughts are precious toward you. Look to the person next to you and say, God's thoughts are precious toward you. He knows everything you think, say, do, and need, and his thoughts are precious. Notice what it says. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That's amazing. With all of that knowledge, it seems that God's thoughts would be skeptical of me. He knows all my weaknesses, all my bumps and bruises, my flaws. He knows it all. 
But the scriptures say rather than distancing himself from me, he actually is pursuing me, he's pursuing you in love for us. That's amazing. Because generally when someone gets to know us more, if someone knew, if your spouse knew, if your best friend knew every thought, action, and word that you've spoken, they would probably move away from you a little bit. They would probably be a little bit horrified, a little bit disgusted, but not so with God. His thoughts are precious toward you. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons why is because God's love for you is not contingent upon you being lovable. Did you know that? God's love for you is not contingent upon you being lovable. That's not why God loves you. We're not lovable most of the time. God's love for you is based out of him being a God who is love and who is so full of love that the love of God erupts out of him and onto us. That's why he loves you. That's why his thoughts can still be precious toward you even though he knows everything that you say, think, and do because it's not contingent upon you being lovable. It's contingent upon the amount and the abundance of love that he has. Is that amazing? Now notice the language here though. The language begins really romantic. It's like when I was texting Veronica while we're dating, like waking up in the morning and I'm thinking about you and texting her a little love language text. And at night I'm texting her last person I talk to before I go to bed. It's like, oh my goodness, the love here, the love language. Look at it again. It's oh, how precious are your thoughts? I should count them. They would be more in the number uh, more in number than the sand in the sea. When I awake, I'm still with you. I mean, this is incredible. It's full of love for us. Even though he knows everything that we say, think, and do. Is this remarkable? Are you blown away just a little bit? This is the kind of relationship people dream about. To be fully known and fully loved. And this is the relationship that God offers us. This is how God thinks about you. Not just us, but you personally. Do you believe it? God thinks about you and God's thoughts are precious toward you. That's incredible. So then, how do we think about God in return? How do we think about him? Well, the first thing that we see the psalmist thinks about God is that first, he's with you. He's with us. He's with you. Go back to verse 7. The direction of the psalm kind of goes like God looking down at us and the psalmist looking back on God. So that's why we're going back and forth. But verse 7 says this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Here, in response to how God thinks about us, the psalmist is thinking about God. And the first thing that comes to the psalmist's mind is that God is with him. Now, if it was just based on the knowledge that God knows everything about us, that's a little bit freaky. To have that with us all the time. But no, how he thinks about God and God being with him all the time is in response to being totally, fully known and fully loved by God. Therefore, it's not freaky that God's with us all the time. It's comforting. To have someone that fully knows us and fully loves us, that's with us all the time, through thick and through thin, that's amazing. 
Notice his view of God is that God is so grand, that God is so big, there's nowhere that he can go where God is not. God is with him all the time. Here's a follow-up question about how you think about God. How small or how big is your God? When you think about God, has he been reduced to a Sunday morning service like this? Or a couple conversations throughout the week? Or is God so great, is God so big that everywhere that you go, you cannot run from him? He's there. He's with you. Notice, he says, if I go up into heaven, you're there. That means all the little moments of heaven on earth, he's here. Like when you're eating your favorite food and it's like heaven on earth, he's there in that moment. Or when you're surfing and it's perfect and it's tubing and you're in the barrel and the waves are pumping and the sun is out, heaven on earth for me, he's there. The greatest moments of life, he's there. He's with you. But notice what else the psalmist says. That if I make my bed in hell, you're there. I'm getting more convinced that there's just like there's glimpses of heaven on earth, there's glimpses of hell on earth too. A lot of you know that through suffering, through pain, through abuse, through torment, through war, through injustice, through divorce, through disease. There's moments of hell on earth. And in those moments, they can be almost too much to bear. What the psalmist says, though, is God, his view of God is so big that God is there with him in those moments. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Now that's comforting. That we don't have to walk through the darkest and most difficult moments alone. God is there. Now, if you're following, though, and you're listening, that can be a predicament for a lot of people. Because if everything that the scriptures are saying is true, that God knows all things, that this is the God who created the heavens and the earth and he loves me, why then does he have to allow me to go through such suffering and injustice? Why do I have to go through hell on earth? Right? A lot of people get held up on that idea and that question. And listen, we could spend an entire sermon series unpacking that. But here is the short story according to the Bible. It's that God is not dismissive. God is not avoiding. God is not numb to your situation, your trial, your pain, your difficulty, your suffering. No, he enters into it with you. You are not alone. Suffering's inevitable. You can suffer without God or you can suffer with God. That's your choice. God's with you in your suffering. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a child of God, he is with you. And for the follower of Jesus, suffering is only a stop in our final destination. What do I mean by that? As a follower of Jesus, there might be crying in the evening, but there's joy in the morning. On the other side of suffering, there's always glory. On the other side of the cross, there's the resurrection. Suffering is not the end of the story for the follower of Jesus. We avoid pain. We avoid suffering. We dismiss it. We numb it. That's what we do. But God does it. He enters into it with us. And he will see us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us even on hell on earth. So much so that the psalmist says that darkness is like light unto you, O Lord. That's incredible. So how does the psalmist think about God? In light of being fully known and fully loved by God, he recognizes that God is with him all the time. Big view or small view? Big view. Great view. Grand view of who God is. That's how he thinks about God. What's the second way he thinks about God? Is that God is worthy of his praise. Notice this. A very famous portion of scripture. Verse 13 and on. 
says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How does he think about God? He thinks about God in such a way that God is worthy of his praise. What do I mean by that? Notice there, he's seeing God as so great, so grand, the creator of even himself, that he begins to praise God. But there's something I really want to pull out of this. It's really interesting. Because in relationships with one another, these things come up. And these things are this, identity and destiny. What do I mean? In relationships with other people, I don't care who you are. I don't, it doesn't matter how old you are. Every single person sets out to answer this question. Or these questions. Who am I? And why do I matter? Every person, doesn't matter who you are sets out to find the answers to the question, who am I and why do I matter? And where we seek to answers, answer those questions is generally in relationship with other people. So who am I? The first thing I identified myself as when I was young was a surfer. As a surfer, that's who I am. And then at age 14, my parents moved us to Texas and I went through my first identity crisis at the primal age of 14. Okay? Who am I? And then I went through my rebel years, and I'm not the surfer anymore, I'm the rebel. And then you get married, and then you're your husband and father, and all these different labels get placed on you. Is that who I am in relationship with other people, all these different labels? So for you, it's husband, or wife, or father, or mother, or single, or divorce, and bop, 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 bop. All the labels get placed on us in relationship with other people. Who am I? So people literally spend all of their lives trying to answer the question, who am I? But for the psalmist, his view of God was so big, it was so grand, that in response to how God thinks about him, he recognizes that he is the beloved of God. That's who he is. That he is the beloved of God. And notice this, he begins to sing praises to God. In other words, God is now the center of the psalmist's life, not him. See, if you didn't realize, there is a war going on for your soul and for your heart. There's two kings. There's us, and there's King Jesus. And there's a war going on for the throne of your heart. Who is going to reign in our heart? Oftentimes, we like to place ourselves on the throne, and Jesus is a little add-on. We go to him when we need. But what the psalmist says is his view of God is so great, it's so grand. God is the one he begins to praise. God is at the throne of his heart. And then he says, you're the one who formed me. You're the one who created me. In other words, he's finding his identity in who? In God. Who am I? The answer to that question is given to us by God as God becomes the center of our life. Who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm the beloved of God. That's who I am. Who am I? But what's the other question? Why do I matter? Why do I matter? What's the point of my life? What's the point of it all? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Now we're living in this moment in history where the answers to these questions, who am I and why do I matter, are up to us to answer. It's in the case historically. There's a lot of people writing about this right now. It's really, really interesting. Like hundreds of years ago, who were you? You, were, you did 
what your father did or your mother did. That's who you were. Who were you? You were whatever your community says you were. That's what it was back in the day. Now, we know that who we are is based on our relationship with Jesus. That's what we just covered. But why do I matter? These are things that people are trying to spend their entire lives figuring out. Why do I matter? So everyone's trying to prove themselves. Everyone's trying to hustle. Everyone's trying to prove who they are, why they matter. This is a question everyone is asking. They try to go in relationship with other people to figure that out. So go to job, to job, to job, trying to figure out why do I matter. Or relationship to relationship, relationship. Or friend group to friend group to friend group, trying to figure out why in the world do I matter. Does anyone care about me? Am I relevant at all? We're told these ideas like live your truth and live your life and be the captain of your own fate and whatever. All these ideas trying to figure out who you are and why you matter. But the beauty and the good news this morning is that you can bypass all these things. That you don't need to spend a lifetime trying to answer your questions of identity and your questions of destiny. Jesus, the scriptures, answers these questions. Who are you? You're the beloved of God. You belong to him. And why do you matter? You matter because he created you. He's the one who knit you together, who formed you. You are wonderfully made by him. And he has fashioned your days before you even live them. That's what it says there at the end of verse 16. He's fashioned your days for you. You don't need to figure out and be the master of your own life and figure everything out. You need to simply, we simply need to allow God to be the center of our lives. And all these other questions are answered. This is how the psalmist thinks about him. That God is with him. And that God is so worthy of our praise that he is the centering aspect for our identity and destiny. This is how the psalmist thinks about God in response to how God thinks about us. That he knows us and that he loves us. Now what does all this mean? Let's land the plane here. Well, if you open your Bibles there in verse 19, things get a little bit weird. Okay, beautiful language, romantic language in verse 18. If I should count them, they would be more in the number and then the sand, uh, more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Beautiful, right? And then verse 19 pops up. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. I'm doing the sound effect because I've been preaching this to youth and they like it. Okay. Your enemies seek your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Whoa, dude. It's a beautiful psalm. Why do you have to wreck it like that? Hatred, violence, murder, bloodthirsty men? What's going on here? Well, if you step back for a second, it makes perfect sense. What the psalmist just discovered is that he's fully known and fully loved by God. And if you're fully known and fully loved by someone, then what this means is that you can be totally and completely honest with them. Question, who are you going to pour out your soul to? Are you going to pour out your soul to the random person that passes by? If you do, warning, not a good idea. Who do you pour out your soul to? You pour out your soul to someone that knows you. Who's someone that loves you. Who's someone that cares about you. It's in that context and in that relationship. You are going to unpack and expose the ugliest sides of who you are. It's when you're fully known and fully loved. So what I'm saying. People dream about the kind of relationship that God is saying that he offers us. 
that we can be totally and completely exposed before him because we're fully known and fully loved by him. Remember, his love for us is not contingent upon us being lovable. Therefore, we can expose the ugliest areas of our hearts. Now, when I do this, oftentimes people, even the very closest people in my life, have one of these two responses. Usually, they try to fix the problem right away. Because they're uncomfortable with this. So they try to fix it right away. Anyone else like, experienced that before? It's like, let's like put a band-aid on this. Or the other thing they try to do is be like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. And they try to just numb it and just like suppress it. Why? Because it's too uncomfortable for them. But not so with God. God's not overwhelmed with your emotions. God's not overwhelmed with the ugliest parts of our lives. He already knows it all and he loves us. Man, this is incredible. This is the relationship people dream about. We can be totally and absolutely exposed before him. Now, this is interesting. If you didn't know this, the Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. Okay? According to so many people in church history, like Bonhoeffer, for instance, wrote a book on it. It's a cute little one called Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms is not God talking to man. The Psalms is man talking to God. And so what the Psalms do as we read the Psalms is a prayer book in the Bible. They teach us how to pray. And how the Bible teaches us how to pray is that based on the head knowledge that God knows us and that God loves us, when that enters into the heart, it then can unlock the heart for us to fully express our emotion to him. The Psalms teach us to express and to pray out our anger and grief. Because if we don't, what's going to happen? It's going to erupt in a different relationship. Probably the closest relationships to us in our marriages, in our families, with our kids, with our best friends. If we do not pray out our emotion to God, who's the safest and most secure relationship to do so, then we're going to erupt somewhere else. So what do the Psalms do? The Psalms teach us to pray out our emotion to God. He is not overwhelmed by your emotion. He's not overwhelmed by your anger or your hatred or any of it. Eugene Peterson has a book on the Psalms and prayer. And he, he writes about this idea that prayer and praying out our emotion and praying out our anger and praying out our hatred. What it does is it leaves more room for God. Now think of, think of that. Think of your heart spatially for a moment. If there's all this anger and all this bitterness and all this envy and all this insecurity and all this jealousy and all of these emotions that come up in the human relationships. What prayer does is we can pray those emotions out, not so that we can be full of ourself and our wants and our needs. No, we pray all of that emotion out so that we can have more room for God. Now listen, do we need to go to God in, in respect and prayer? Yeah, we do. But at the same time, God is not overwhelmed by your language and prayer. He's not taken off guard. If out of your anger something slips out, he's not overwhelmed by that. You can say whatever you want to him in a relationship where you're fully known and fully loved. He already knows what you say and think anyways, right? 
So what does this mean? It means that we can pray out every emotion, good, bad, and ugly, before God. He will not be overwhelmed by it. In that way, the Psalms are almost like therapy. But this is the difference. Therapy, therapy uncovers what were our emotions and our triggers so that we're not under the tyranny of our feelings anymore. So that then we can be recentered back on our wants and needs. But the Psalms expresses and exposes our emotions so that we can be recentered back onto God. Big difference. It's beautiful, right? So what does this mean? It means you can be totally, completely honest with God. Why? Because he already knows. And it's a relationship. Therefore, you need to do some communicating as well. And you can dump out on him. He's not overwhelmed by it. What else does it mean? It means then that God can be honest with you. Notice the closing of our psalm. Verse 21. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. What's he doing? If you're in a relationship with someone where you're fully known and fully loved by them, then who better to speak into your life? So how does the psalmist end? He ends by saying, search me, God. Speak into my life. Be honest with me, God. Isn't that what we do anyways? Like generally it's like, say, if some random person is like mouthing you off. I don't know. Like you have a bad waiter or waitress. Anyone ever had that before? They just like blow up on you. It's like, whoa. Is that just me? It's happened before. Or you're just like that random person. You're like, what in the world is that? You don't care what they say. You don't care. They, you're, what, what's your response? You don't know me. Right? Some random person. Yep. I don't care what they think about me. But who do we value input into our lives? The people closest to us. If we are fully known and fully loved by God, who better to speak into our lives than the person who fully knows and fully loves us? Search my ways. See if there's any wicked way within me. What I'm trying to get at here is trust. There's no better person to trust than a God who fully knows you and fully loves you. Who's not going to betray you. Who's not going to speak something into your life with a, some kind of malicious intent. There's no better person to trust, to be honest with, and to allow them to be honest with you. Are you following? How is this possible? Let's really land the plan. I'll invite the band to come back up. How is all this possible? All this is possible. Well, first... Let's just address this. How do we know this isn't some cute little fairy tale sermon and the scriptures are just some cute little fairy tale book? Oh, this sounds great. A relationship like this to be fully known, fully loved. That sounds amazing. Where I can express my emotion, allow them to be honest with me. How, how do I know that's real though? There's no such thing about that. There's no relationship like that in real life. It's a pipe dream. So how do we know the scriptures aren't some fairy tale? Because God demonstrated this for us. He left heaven and he came to earth. His name is Jesus. And there's no debate historically on whether Jesus of Nazareth walked this planet and went to the cross. God came and all that mess of our lives that we try to hide and avoid and dismiss. All of that mess. Jesus came as a person to sympathize with us in whatever heaven or hell situation we find ourselves in it. 
find ourselves in. He went to the cross where the mess of our lives he took upon himself. Why? Because our mess, our error, every single thing that you say, you do, you think, all that ugly side of those things require a punishment. So what did Jesus do? On the cross, he took the mess of our lives. He endured the punishment. He buried it in the grave. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. He rose again victoriously. He's alive today and he's pursuing after you still. He's the initiator. We're the responder. And whether you've known him for decades, he's still pursuing you into deeper love, into deeper waters of his grace. Or whether you've never known him, he is searching you out right now. His name is Jesus. How do you know this isn't a fairy tale or some pipe dream? Simply pray and ask him. If he's real, it's not a test. Jesus taught us to ask, seek, and knock. You're not testing him. You're just saying, Jesus, if you're real, if you really love me with this kind of unconditional love that the scriptures say that you love me, then simply ask him in prayer. And let me tell you, that is a prayer he is ready to answer. And he will marvel you and blow you away with his love for you. How is this possible? It's possible because of Jesus. How do we know? Because Jesus can be known. How do we know Jesus? Simply reach out to him in prayer and he will answer you. It's a promise from scripture. 